2: Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Another week of divisive hearings in Congress, but there is some common ground on key pieces of legislation, especially when it comes to the skies, including getting to the truth of one of the universe's greatest mysteries.
3: Let's say this is, and we find out, you know, it's not us. It's not from here. It's from some other galaxy somewhere. Uh, Are people prepared mentally, mentally, to deal with that, you know, that we truly are not alone. I'm Jared Halpern.
1: 75 years of friendship between the U.S. and Israel on display this week, even as the two governments are navigating domestic disagreements.
0: I think a lot of people who support the state of Israel are a little bit less worried about Biden and more worried about what comes after him in the Democratic Party.
2: This
1: is the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
2: Are we alone? It's a question astronomers have long debated, and Republican Congressman Tim Burchett says it's time for the government to give the people some answers. The House and Senate are hoping a number of bipartisan declassification bills related to unidentified anomalous phenomena will provide more transparency surrounding UAPs. That's not the only legislation related to the skies that's currently taking off, as Congress is making progress on reauthorizing the Federal Aviation Administration. But when it comes to funding the nation's military, Republicans and Democrats aren't exactly on the same page. With the House National Defense Authorization Act passing along mostly party lines, both Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are hoping the Senate version can be bipartisan. With only one week left until August recess, Fox's Chad Pergram helps us preview where things go from here.
3: This is usually a bipartisan exercise in the House and Senate overall. I think some members from both sides of the aisle, particularly on the Democratic side, were taken aback by what the House did to it because the original defense bill came out of the Armed Services Committee, 58 to 1. And they said, all right, uh, that's a good bill. We can work with this. But then Republicans, in order to pass it on the floor, without a coalition of Democrats and Republicans in the House, had to put in a bunch of, you know, white-hot social issues, things on abortion, transgender surgeries in the military. Uh, A lot of that was in there, and so that's why you only had four Democrats vote for the bill in the end in the house this is going to be a different enterprise in the senate as i said you're going to have a bipartisan effort here they're trying to keep these poison pills as the senate majority leader chuck schumer described it out of the bill because they won't be able to get 60 votes remember they have to get 60 votes on this bill and when they kick it back to the house you know the house and senate will then have passed pieces of legislation that are starkly different and they'll have to figure out a way to align and, uh, you know, what the Senate has passed, you know, can they stomach that in the House? Well, yes, is the bottom line, probably with a bipartisan coalition. That coalition I talked about to get the bill out of the committee, uh, but some of those uh, white-hot issues have to go. What are the consequences of that? Well, that's the call that Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, has to make. I mean, he he put a pretty conservative bill on the floor. That appealed to his right flank. Will he be criticized if they pass a bipartisan uh, defense bill here? and uh, let those uh, social issues go by the wayside. Uh, You know, this was the criticism of Kevin McCarthy from the right after he cut the deal on the debt ceiling a couple of months ago, uh, where they said, you passed that bill with more Democrats than Republicans. So, you know, what does that mixture look like in the House?
2: Right. And you hear Scott Perry last week saying that he's willing to compromise in some way, but he's not going to give up. The Freedom Caucus is not going to just flat out roll over, depending on what the Senate kicks back. But do we know what line they're willing to draw uh, in order to 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 come to the table and agree to something?
3: Yeah. Perry and Chip Roy, the Republican from Texas, they've said it better look a lot more like the bill that we passed out of the House. Um Uh, Again, that probably won't be able to pass and become law, and this is where maybe you have some of the more defense-minded Republicans come to the table and say, Speaker McCarthy, we have to pass this because it's a national security issue. We have to pass this bill. We've done so every year for 62 years. It's a very important piece of legislation. And does uh, Kevin McCarthy have to swallow and say, all right, this is this is tough. Uh, This is a a challenging bill here and I have to take one for the team and say, all right, you know, you know, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go down that road. But again, what happens? Do the conservatives then get up in the grill of Kevin McCarthy and say, again, you have not done what we elected you to do? You know, there's a reason why your speaker's race went 15 rounds in January.
2: And we also have the FAA reauthorization going on right now, too. And, you know, when we talk about the NDAA, we're talking about something that's normally bipartisan. But this year it was rarely uh, partisan based off what we saw in the House. Is it going to be the same for the FAA reauthorization, too?
3: They passed that bill on a broad bipartisan basis. Uh, The final vote in the House was 351 to 69, uh, basically to address a lot of these concerns with air travel, technical glitches, uh, the hiring and retention of pilots, the hiring and retention of controllers. uh, You know, that contributes to some of these delays. And they thought that this bill would be able to address some of that. Now, what's interesting is that the Senate, there was a fight just a couple of weeks ago when they were marking up this bill in committee. And so they called off the markup, and they haven't touched this bill since. So does the Senate just take the House bill? I mean, this is a pretty, you know, overwhelming bipartisan margin here. That's possible. They have until September 30th to do that, and I wonder if they can't work that out. If this becomes something that's attached to an interim spending bill to fund the government, because that also expires on September 30th.
2: Right, and we also have an appropriations process going going on right now, and it really hasn't gotten too much attention just just because I think these other issues. September 30th. Yeah. Yeah, and because all these other issues have kind of dominated the headlines right now, but they they've got a timetable that's not too uh, flexible to work with right now
3: unless they were to stay here through August, which we have zero signals that that's going to happen, uh, at least to work on appropriations bills. Kevin McCarthy has said that he wants to do the appropriations bills individually. It's unclear if he has the votes to pass them individually by the book uh, in the House. He also has said he will not do an omnibus, uh, which means they put all the bills together and they pass them en masse, but these are new bills. You know, They've raised or changed the funding at each level. What might be the gambit here is that they could put together uh, what we call a, a minibus, which is where they have a bunch of individual bills. You know, there are 12 appropriations bills, and they do you know three in one and six in the other and another three in another one. I, I don't know. But what that probably means, because they're running out of track, is they have to do an interim bill to keep the government open past September 30th. That is called a continuing resolution, and what it does is it continues to fund the government at the current spending levels. Well, that's not quite a cut, but it is when you start to factor in inflation and everything else as you go into the next fiscal year. And there are some conservatives, and you might even find the speaker in this category, we don't know yet, that might say, okay, this is our way out of this because we're not allowing them to spend more. And we're, you know, getting done, you know, some of the the other programs, you know, maybe we can pass a couple of these other bills down the way, but that keeps the government open. Uh, there are some on the right who, frankly, are begging for a government shutdown. They would love to have a standoff with President Biden. You know, this is the first time that Republicans have had the House during the Biden administration. And, um, it, you know, it seems like we have those increasingly when you have the party opposite of the president sometimes here. Uh, You certainly had that with President uh, uh, Obama. But, you know, it did happen in, in, you know, 2019, you know, 2018 into 2019 here, where you had um, a Republican House and the government started, you know, with a shutdown. The new Congress did.
2: Right. And, and I remember when we were going through uh, the debt ceiling negotiations, a, a lot of Democrats would say, well, we're not willing to negotiate on this issue. We want a clean debt ceiling bill, but we are willing to talk about spending cuts when we get into the appropriations process. Now, it, could there be enough spending cuts to make conservatives happy in this, or is this going to be likely a situation where it's going to get pretty divisive down to the wire?
3: They don't have enough consensus on the Republican side of the aisle among themselves to agree to these things, because, you know, you have one coalition inside the House Republican Conference that wants to cut everything down to the bone, down to the quick, and while that doesn't actually do a lot toward deficit reduction, because you're actually, you know, cutting a lot of, um, uh, you might be cutting programs or, 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 or priorities that are important to Democrats or something like that, you're not making much of a dent in the overall you know, deficit, uh, because the, the number, I mean, it's a big number, but it's just too small when you're talking about the the size of the federal government and just how big the, the national debt is, you know, well over $30 trillion these days. Uh, but, again, if you don't have the votes because you have some Republicans who say this priority, this forest service program is important to my district, I can't vote for that bill, but I want to cut this thing out that, you know, is important to the left on abortion or something. I, I mean, you, you finding the individual coalition on each of those bills to make something pass is really uh, a bear and it's hard to see how they get that done and that's why you know they might just wind up with this interim spending bill and we'll see how long that dance goes on uh, it might go on for a few months past September 30th frankly
2: and and if we could move on to something you know outside of some of the negotiations going on right now we had a pretty fiery hearing this week where you had mm-hmm. two whistleblowers who testified that the Department of Justice uh, in some ways got in the way of potentially charging Hunter Biden with more uh, serious uh, charges than he ultimately has ended up facing in his plea deal, you know what do we make of of the testimony that these two whistleblowers had, and did it move the needle at all in con- in the Oversight Committee convincing both the public and Democrats that there's something that needs to be looked into here?
3: Well, the big dispute, and this is what Republicans have latched onto, is that these IRS whistleblowers, who were top agents at the IRS. Uh, basically said, we don't see how you can go to Hunter Biden based on what we know with his tax returns and everything else and not charge him with a felony. Now, the plea agreement uh, was a misdemeanor. So they were led to believe that this is the direction it was going. Again, they are the people who do the investigating, go through all the paperwork, but they are not prosecutors. It is up to the prosecutor. Well, the prosecutor in this case was David Weiss, He's the U.S. attorney for Delaware, and he said this is what the plea agreement is going to be. Well, Gary Shapley, who is a top IRS agent, who is one of the you know top investigators there, uh, he was under the impression from last October, uh, after a, a conversation with David Weiss and others, that you know that that he had the ultimate authority to charge. Hunter Biden or anybody else related to the Bidens or anything uh, tied in with this investigation at any level, he wanted. But then there there was the supposition that he didn't, and so people are like, wait a minute, was the thumb put down from the Justice Department here on David Weiss? And then he's you know subsequently said, no, 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 I I had control of this. I, you know I I can make the ultimate authority, and that you know Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, was not involved. So now you have Republicans. And they would have called for this anyway, probably, calling for the impeachment of Merrick Garland. Now, it is far from clear that you have DOJ putting the thumb on David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, uh, to treat the Bidens and specifically Hunter Biden differently. Uh, That's far from clear. Republicans think that it is clear as day. And therefore, when you talk to some of the more conservative Republicans, you know, I, I spoke with Byron Donalds, a Republican from Florida, and he indicated he said, "Well, of course, you know we should impeach uh, you know Merrick Garland for this. So um is it going to go down that road? And again, you only have a four seat majority, and you have a lot of moderate Republicans in Biden districts, in other words, districts that President Biden won. So these districts oftentimes lean to the left or or, or skew slightly to the left in favor of Democrats. And so they might not be there anyway, but their reelection could be in jeopardy if they start to, you know, vote, whether it be, as we said a few minutes ago, in appropriations or to impeach Merrick Garland or whatnot. I mean, are the votes actually there to do that? And there's some Republicans who would like to impeach Merrick Garland, but just say, you know, we've only done that X number of times in our history. We've done it a lot lately with two presidents, um, three presidents in the past, you know, you know quarter century here. Um, they had never really done a cabinet official. There was William Belknap, who was the secretary of war back in the 1870s, who was impeached. Uh, you know, you know, a you know, couple of dozen
4: federal judges in between there. But that's this is pretty rare.
2: All right. Thank you so much for your time, right. Chad.
4: Hey, folks, it's your man. Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house
1: The bond is ironclad in marking its seventy-fifth year. That was the big message President Biden wanted to deliver to Israel's president Isaac Herzog this week.
4: And I you know my love for you is deep rooted long lasting. And uh as I, as I often said if it wouldn't be that took that one.
1: The two leaders reaffirmed security cooperation, shared goals to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, and values based on democratic traditions.
4: And uh, as I uh, affirmed to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday, America's commitment to Israel is firm, and it it is ironclad.
1: But the relationship between President Biden and Netanyahu is not without its bumps. Notably, Netanyahu has not met with President Biden here at the White House since winning back the premiership last year. The two leaders are expected to meet somewhere in the U.S. later this year. President Biden has publicly criticized Netanyahu's right-wing coalition government, calling members of the cabinet extreme in objecting to expansions of West Bank settlements and a proposed judicial reform bill that has sparked massive protest from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. President Herzog noted that political reality from the Oval Office.
4: It's a heated debate, but it's also a virtue and a tribute to the greatness of Israeli democracy. And let me reiterate clear, crystal clear, Israeli democracy is sound, strong, and resilient.
1: Despite those differences of policy, there appears to be no sign of any breakdown in the overall U.S.-Israel relationship. That was evidenced by large bipartisan applause as Herzog spoke later in the week to a joint meeting of Congress, welcomed by both Republicans and Democrats, despite several progressives boycotting the address. Morgan Ortegas was among those in the House chamber for Herzog's address. She was an advisor and spokesperson at the State Department during the Trump administration, the founder of Polaris National Security.
0: You know, the the trouble that Israel has in the United States uh, is not with the Republicans, frankly. It's with the Democrats. It's with the far-leaning leftists, you know, who made really inflammatory statements leading up to the president's speech. Uh, You had Representative Jayapal calling Israel a racist state. Um, but I will say what was encouraging is the total rejection of that by large bipartisan majorities in the Congress. So after uh, the leftist, uh, you know, Jayapal said that Israel was a racist state, she later tried to walk those comments back. Uh, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy uh, put before a vote before uh, the Congress, which was a resolution that Israel was not a racist state and not an apartheid state. And, and that passed, uh, I think it was 412 to 9. Mm-hmm. So... She was overwhelmingly rejected with that, um, you know, with that resolution. And then, as somebody who actually attended the speech, as I did, uh, it was incredibly encouraging for me to see uh, the 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 very over-the-top applause, the warm welcome, the number of times people stood up uh, during President Herzog's speech. It was you, you couldn't tell if it was Republicans or Democrats, right? Everybody was standing yeah. up to to welcome the president, to clap for the president, uh, and, and even in parts of his speech that I thought would be maybe on the more controversial side like Iran, for example. Mm
1: You know, I was in the Oval Office when when uh, Presidents Herzog and Biden uh, had their, their oh wow at least the open part of it uh, for the media. Yeah. I was in there for the whole thing, obviously. But I was poor reporter that day. And you know what struck me is that clearly you know there are differences of policy right now between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government, and, and these aren't new, right? That there have always been right. kind of these these struggles with the U.S. and West Bank expansion and a two-state solution, and, and but you know that wasn't evident in, in this meeting right and, and i guess what that i'm getting at is it spoke to me that you know those as big a deal as those who'd appear on the surface um they haven't really undermined any sort of bilateral security cooperation that hasn't even talked about right
0: um i don't yeah i don't on no, security and cooperation no i mean you you do have you know the the squad which you know refused to attend the speech whatever no one seemed to care Um, And it was and it was packed for sure. You know, the the question is, is, you know, not I I think that Biden has a relationship with many Israeli leaders. Uh, Biden, I I think, would consider himself a, a, you know, a friend of Israel. Um, and, And I think a lot of people who support the state of Israel are a little bit less worried about Biden and more worried about what comes after him in the Democratic Party because if the younger progressives are the sign of things to come uh Israel could be in in trouble and I got to tell you the the comments And and Herzog alluded to this in his speech, the comments directed towards Israel go beyond criticism of the relationship and and go into anti-Semitism, often on the left. I think the Democratic Party has a a problem uh, with anti-Semitism that they just have not grappled with, uh, coming from many of their members.
1: I mean, some of the, the issues as it relates to particularly that the judicial reform, which President Biden has made clear he has some problems with. A lot of people in Israel have a problem with it if you've looked at the protests that have happened over there. Yeah, that's kind of the democracy. It is fair yeah. to criticize policies without, you know, sort of diving into anti-Semitism. That, that, that's kind of the, the, the needle that, that that is being thread here.
0: Yeah, I mean they're the only democracy in the Middle East, and uh, I guess we have a right to criticize their policy changes as much as they have a right to criticize ours. I sure. mean, neither one of us live in either person's country. Um, there's plenty of things going on in this country that I'm sure they'd like to be critical of as well. So, yeah, but if, again, if you go back to the statements that are consistently made by the squat and others, they're anti-Semitic. They're not. They have nothing to do with criticizing policy.
1: But as you pointed out earlier, that that is a pretty small number of democrats yes, i mean that, thankfully that, that was rejected so mm-hmm. i mean this isn't a relationship in the, the us israeli partnership regardless of administrations isn't isn't one that's in danger
0: i ho- i certainly hope it's not uh you know because that would be bad that would be bad for israel and i've always You know, said this, that that Israel or any other country can't have a relationship uh, with one um, party in the United States because, you know what, one party is in power and then a few years later you're not and the other party is. So you can't base your relationship in the United States off of one political party. It has to be with both, um, and that's why I do think it was very good for the president to come, and and why, uh, despite you know my very sh- you know strong concerns about what may be coming from the progressive left as it relates to the state of Israel, uh, a lot of that was uh, you know was alleviated at least temporarily by being in the audience and seeing the bipartisan support for Herzog.
1: vice versa, you know, a U.S. president kind of has to have a relationship across. the. They they change prime ministers quite frequently, as we've seen over the last couple of years.
0: I guess. I mean, I mean, Bibi's been prime minister for, what, 12 years now, and he took a reprieve for a year. So they haven't changed that frequently.
1: Well, they have a lot of elections. Um, They have a lot of turnover in its cabinet. Certainly the coalition government that Bibi has right now is not the coalition government he had the last time that he was in prime ministership. How does that impact sort of the, the, the relationship is the United States and Israel try and set out on a long-term footing?
0: Oh, it's really nothing. I mean, you know, I could tell you as, as working with Mike Pompeo very closely for two years, the last secretary of state and going around the world, we had more, foreign minister changes in the united kingdom than i think anywhere else in the world like every time i looked we had (laughs) they've had a lot of prime ministers as well yeah yeah so that's not i i i think that you know listen democracies are democracies and they can change cabinet members as frequently as they need to and we'll deal with whatever counterpart we had to i don't think if for example i don't think the fact that the uk kept changing foreign ministers it didn't affect the bilateral relationship between the united states and and the and the united kingdom
1: and the same would apply here with the relationship with Israel.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah.
1: What moving forward is the biggest issue um, that the United States and Israel are going to have to settle? I mean, obviously, the Palestinian issue is one that is not going away. Um, right now, the policy of Israel is, seems to be more of an expansionist one as it relates to to West Bank settlements. Um, Is there much diplomatic pressure that the United States can can put on Israel to, to at least slow that down in the hopes of brokering some sort of lasting peace?
0: I just think you have the calculation wrong in your question. You know, the, 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 it is not, uh, it's not up to us to pressure Israel to make peace with the Palestinians. You have a Palestinian leadership that is, compl- first of all, leadership, I say in air quotes, because, they, because Abbas is not much of a leader. And in many ways, you almost have a civil war in that country mm-hmm. between all of the warring factions that Iran are supporting, Hamas, mm-hmm. uh, the PLO, Pij, uh, you know, Islamic Jihad. Uh, you know, you go through go through the list of terror groups that are being supported and financed uh, by the Iranians. Uh, much less, you know, w- the territory that uh, Hamas has control of, and Abbas having very little grip on power. In fact, I think what we what we are suffering from is is such a is, is such a weak leadership uh, in Abbas and, and his team. It's an incredibly corrupt. I mean, one of the most corrupt quote unquote governments that we have to deal with anywhere in the world. Um, and I was a part of the Abraham Accords negotiating team, helped Jared Kushner and Pompeo on, on their peace plan. And the Palestinians flat out refused to talk. Uh, I was back in Israel with a bipartisan delegation a, a year ago. Uh, we met with Palestinian leadership. And it was the same rhetoric that we heard from 20 or 30 years ago. It's like they forgot that half of the Arab world has now made peace with Israel and, and normalized ties. So it's not incumbent upon um, Israeli, uh, us to pressure the Israelis to get a pal- to get some sort of peace deal. I mean, I, I just think that that's looking at it totally backwards. It's up to the Palestinian people to actually put forward leadership that are willing to negotiate. And if anything, I, I think, God forbid, we're in danger of seeing a civil war amongst the Palestinians themselves, whenever Abbas, you know, God bless his heart, but you know, when he eventually dies, as we all do, uh, that will be, uh, you know, you have a, you will have a massive, massive vacuum there that I'm not sure anybody in the region knows how to deal with right now.
1: You, you know, you mentioned the Abraham Accords, and I'm glad you did, because that seems to be one of the foreign policy areas that has certainly transitioned from one administration to the next. Right. That that, that seems to be expanding. More countries are, are coming into that. Israel seems to uh, yes. be making more partners in, in that part of the world. Um is that really focused on, on Iran? Is that kind of the reason why you see these North African and, and Gulf states engaging with Israel in a way that they hadn't for decades?
0: Um, that, is, that is certainly, I think, absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. It's part of it. But it's not the only thing. Um, I do think it was the impetus for bringing people together in the sense that, as everyone knows, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Oh, and sure. so they shared a common enemy. Um, And I think in the Trump administration, uh, whenever he instituted the maximum economic pressure campaign against Iran and when Trump made the decision to take out Qasem Soleimani, the world's largest terrorist and certainly a massive threat – to Israel and the Gulf Arab countries, um, when we decided to do that, that was such a sea change for the Middle East, that somebody was willing to take such bold action that no one thought would happen. um, That, that I do think that that was the impetus in many ways to start to think out of the box and say, you know, for a lot of these Arab leaders, they're quite young, right? Uh, You you know, Mm -hmm. they're not, it's, it's not what you're, what you're used to seeing. And so these young leaders, are not burdened by the same ways of thinking um, that everybody, you know, has been hearing for 30, 40, 50 years, and they were willing to, to try things that are new. I, I remind you in President Herzog's speech again before, um, before the joint session of Congress just two, a few days ago, he had a line in there about praying for peace between Saudi and Israel that got a standing mm-hmm. ovation. I don't know yeah. that you, I mean, I don't think any of us would have ever expected to hear that in a speech before the Congress, uh, you know, five years ago, that would have yeah. seemed impossible. So
1: That's where I was going to take this. I mean, d- was that an indication to you that the Israelis think that Saudi Arabia may enter the Abraham accords or at least open up some sort of diplomatic? I mean, they, the two countries don't have any official diplomatic ties.
0: That's right. I, I, I don't think that President Herzog would have uh, said that with, without there being some sort of meat behind it. You know, I'm not in this current administration, yeah. so, so that is their, their deal to negotiate and work out. But I will tell you, all of us who were involved in Abraham Accords you know, hope and pray that they are built upon, that they grow, that the ties between the countries grow, that more countries join. And so I'm very much an advocate and, and supportive of peace. Um, so I hope they get there.
1: I mean, that would be such a, a sea change in the Middle East for Saudi Arabia to, to do. I mean, and, and listen, I, I say they don't have any official diplomatic as I think that there is uh, there seems to be, at least if you read between the tea leaves, some some level of cooperation between the two nations um, and certainly flyover rights and things like that have now. Uh, yeah, I think it, it, you heard
0: the ambassador. You heard fly over rights. You heard the ambassador uh, from Saudi Arabia to the United States talking about this also openly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're there and they've reached the deal, but being able to utter each other's name publicly is a good thing. You've also (laughs) seen on the lower level side – You've seen some sports teams from Israel that have been able to go and participate in Saudis. So reportedly, they've reached a deal in UNESCO on Israeli representatives being able to go for that meeting. So you're you are starting to see lower level things percolate that normalize. Also, I'd remind, you know, the Gulf is 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 big, but it's not that big. And so Saudis that go to uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai or to Bahrain mm-hmm. for the weekend, because there are now ties with Israel, they're seeing Israeli tourists uh, in, in those cities. And so they're getting used to the sight of each other
3: and
1: probably seeing the benefits of, of the trade and the economic uh, impact.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, absolutely. I mean, if you're in Abu Dhabi, right,
1: you, you would see sort of firsthand what, what kind of that, that economic exchange oh, looks like. Yeah. Um, I've not, if, I, I'd have to look at the numbers. I don't
0: have them in yeah, front no, of me. Yeah, no, I don't know the, what they are. But, but the I mean, trade, to, to your point, the though, yeah, are they, astronomical.
1: they would certainly be seeing that. Let me finish with this as we kind of talk about. You know, the Trump administration into the Biden administration and one of these areas where it seems to uh, be kind of a, a smoother transition is in the Abraham Accords. Are you satisfied with how you've seen that type of engagement, that kind of follow up with the current administration?
0: Yeah, they've been I, I will I would say if initially they weren't, right? Like initially the the state department spokesperson couldn't even utter the words Abraham Accords. Um and then I think they realized that was kind of stupid, right? And and since then, uh they actually have appointed somebody recently to be uh the sort of uh, the point person, the representative for Abraham Accords and fostering ties between um all these countries. So so yes, I, there is A reluctance to take on something from the Trump administration initially. But since then, I I do feel like that they understand, uh, as I do, that the um, uh, that peace is much, much bigger than one political party. And no matter who gets peace, you support it and promote it.
1: Morgan, I appreciate the the time. I know it's been busy for you. Um, And thank you for your uh, uh, not only the 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 analysis, but some of the reporting from inside the room there where President Herzog spoke to uh, a, a joint session of Congress. Appreciate the time.
0: Happy to. Thank you for having me
1: tomorrow on the fox news rundown from washington republicans are pressing administration officials about the border even as the number of illegal crossings drops to a two-year low kevin cork looks at what both sides are saying about the issue and a trial date is set for one of the cases against former president trump and with another indictment now expected are his prospects for re-election changing i'll discuss that with our political analyst josh crosshour until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpert. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.